0: Welcome to Data Myths Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Melinda Gagnon.
1: So, a little about us. I'm interested in how tech helps us improve our lives. I have 20 years experience in digital communications, I'm an ex-Googler, and now help launch new companies and products.
0: And I've spent 20 plus years evangelizing tech at some of the world's largest companies, whether you're a data file or a Dataphobe, we have something for you on this podcast. So get ready. Let's go.
1: Good afternoon, Brian. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty excellent.
1: This is an exciting podcast today. We have our very first guest, who I am super excited to introduce. Uh, John Morgan is with us today. And not only is he just an awesome person who is super smart, he has some amazing experience that we'll benefit from today to hear all about. So John is a product manager at Google. He's in their hardware division. And some of the areas that he's worked on in the past is uh, military, consumer, commercial robotics. He's also founded his own startup in IoT. And we're going to have what I'm sure will be a pretty fun conversation about robotics today. So, John, thank you so much for uh, for joining us.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me.
1: And we are we are officially also bi-coastal in this podcast. So Brian and I are sitting in the middle of a snowy snowstorm, <laughs> a snowy snowstorm. Who knew in Maine? And uh, John, where are you talking to us from today? Talking
2: to you from beautiful San Francisco. It's uh, it's sunny in I think fifty-ish. So definitely a little bit different from what you guys have right now.
0: Nice. Well, we're jealous. Uh, also, thank you, ZenCaster. We're giving this thing a try. You don't pay us anything yet, but maybe you will someday.
1: Worth it, worth a shout out for sure. So, so what we thought we'd we'd talk about today is, of course, robotics. But thinking about, well, what is relevant in robotics right now that that we can really dig into and thought we could talk a little bit about consumer robotics. Uh, Brian and I were out at CES back in January and and saw, of course, a lot there in this space and a lot of debate around, well, what is actually a robot, what is not, what is actually going to be useful, and what's just kind of a flash and that's going to be gone tomorrow. So when we start thinking about this space, I mean, John, what are what are you seeing as some of the you know the trends that are talked about now, but maybe won't won't last' I think we're seeing some pretty interesting things in that movement,
2: so I've been watching the robotics industry for i mean a long time at this point, and it's gone through a lot of different waves so it used to be robotics was this unattainable thing that people didn't know how to do, and it was reserved for the highest technology companies, the military um or use in in the factories. Pretty much like you need to have this level of knowledge that you could only get after working in the field for a long period of time or having a PhD. And when I got into robotics, I actually was the first class at WPI to be able to graduate with a robotics engineering degree. And it sort of, in my mind, signaled a little bit of a shift where people could get into this space at a lower, like an earlier point in their career, and then they could start to really do different things. And what I've seen is that idea of you could do robots in the military has switched to that it, to now be, I can have a robot that's in my home. I can have a robot that is moving things around in a factory for me. I understand that robotics actually applies to autonomous vehicles. So when I look at where we are today, it's very interesting because we've seen great success in the, in the automation field. So Kiva Robotics, which is now Amazon Robotics, was like one of the biggest wins for the robotic industry. And now we're seeing um, consumer robotics doing a lot of different things, um, from Jibo to um, little forklift things at Onzi or Sphero. There's lots of different aspects of robotics in the consumer space coming in. And then we, where we've really seen an uptick that I think a lot of people don't see is in the commercial space. So this idea of buying a piece of hardware, a robot, it's very hard for a lot of people to do because robots are expensive. They're just a complex system of sensors and computing power and hardware. And they just, they get to a point in which they're a little hard to attain, hard to purchase. But in the commercial space, we're seeing that these companies are learning that they're not robotics companies. They're companies that are bringing in logistics. There's companies that are doing smart assembly. There are companies that are doing last mile and robotics is simply a tool that they're using. And as that idea has shifted, we're seeing the business model around robotics shift for the commercial space, commercial space, probably first, hopefully it'll come into the other spaces and nice. people aren't buying robots, they're buying services and the robots are just sort of making those services happen. So it's definitely really exciting to see how all of that shifting in over the last I don't know, 10 or so years.
0: So then it probably wouldn't surprise you if I gave you the statistic that... of robots today are actually on the flip side, right? So we've switched from being commercial and factory robots of the Toyota days of, you know, uh, automated welding and things like that and, you know, parts movement to actually drones, uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, personal care pets uh, and, and robots. Types of things like that. So 64% now of the whole market is actually in that consumer space versus on the commercial space. That's really interesting to me.
2: Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. We've actually seen in the last even two to three years, the industrial space used to always be the ABB robotics, the Yamahas. They're doing very basic robot arms for assembly, right? There's plenty more companies. But We've seen startups come come out with cheaper robot arms. We've seen universal robots rethink robotics. Um, and then in the last year, we've actually seen these Chinese manufacturers like, like the Foxcons of the world go ahead and reproduce those universal robotic arms at a fraction of the cost, effectively taking that idea of industrial arms and commoditizing it for the not specialized applications, but for the main mainstream applications, which is very interesting to see that that type of trend happens so quickly.
0: Nice. So when you talk about cost, I know that Kiva systems, uh, they moved They're They're the robots that basically move all of the picker boxes, so to speak uh, for an Amazon warehouse. One of our friends actually worked there. Uh, You're talking about actual arms that are doing things like part picks and welding and TIG and, plastic, you know, automation molding and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, give us a an idea of the price difference from maybe even five years ago. Do you have any rough ideas? Well,
2: it used to be, I mean, let me let me use a sensor, right? You can use piece parts of the robot to sort of understand how the prices have dropped. So back when robotics was starting to get a big, a big name, um, there was the first LiDAR sensor. So that's like a laser scanning range, like rangefinder. Um, they're the ones you see on all the autonomous cars. Um, they look like almost like black cylinders, little cans that go on the top. And when they started out, um, a company called Belladyne made one that uh, would scan, I think it was 37 lines of lasers. And it cost about 30 grand or maybe 35 wow. grand. I can't remember exactly. And now they're coming out with the ones you see on all of these autonomous car companies, um, data gathering robots. And those little pucks cost about three grand. So
0: Wow,
2: so 10X, 10X reduction. It, it's amazing. The technology hasn't changed much. It's just gotten more efficient and more easily accessible in price points because of just advances. It's amazing.
0: Nice. Now, would you say most of the advances that have really lowered the availability of robots or actually increased the availability of robots would you say that is sensors and the cost of sensors dropping by 10x plus compute you know growing i mean moore's law is pretty much dead at this point uh things are not growing quite as fast there but from a from an ai a machine learning perspective I think what we know today versus what we knew even five years ago is that much more the models have gotten that much better. Would you say that's probably the biggest cost improvement?
2: Um, So while sensor cost is is an aspect, I actually think that um, the rise of robots as a platform has started to really change the way people are building these robotic systems. It used to be you wanted to build a robot, you had to find a microcontroller, build a PCB write all of the base level code, and like you're already a year in at that point. Now you can buy a, like an off-the-shelf controller that runs ROS, which is the robot operating system, plug in a few motors, use a model you found on the internet, much like, I know you guys are doing a lot of this machine learning stuff, much like some of the libraries that are available there, and all of a sudden you have a robot that you can send around on, on your floor, um, which in the past would have taken you six months, you can now do it a day. Um, and so it opens up more ideas of what you can build with a robot. Um, and I think that's really the biggest the biggest change that's gotten into more spaces.
1: That's really interesting. So when you think about robotics as a platform, I mean, what are some of the advances you've seen because of that? I mean, is it is it a matter of robots are now able to be more specialized because they're just more people able to not only just think about the idea, but actually build it? Uh, I'm just wondering, kind of, what are the doors that are being unlocked?
2: So I think, I think it does a few things. So it, it sort of allows the rise of the maker. So anyone can build a robot. Like we we were teaching when I was in in college and high school, like we mentored inner city um, children in elementary school, and we would use these like effectively Lego kits to show them how mechatronics worked. And nowadays, you could bring in the um, the Onzi robot and have them actually build and program a robot. It's a totally different aspect of what you can learn and what people can build. And then with the rise of like Raspberry Pis and like Arduinos, anyone can start to make a small automation machine because robots don't have to move around. It can be something that you simply want to turn off your alarm for you in the morning when it goes off. I know it sounds silly, but literally just having an arm that goes down, turns off your alarm, hits the snooze button. You could make that and it technically would be a robot.
1: I mean, it might sound silly in terms of a product that we bring to market and, you know, make a big deal about, but if I were in elementary school and I made a robot that did that, that would be mind blowing. It, <laughs> so, it'd be amazing, right? Like,
2: uh, I remember one of the first things that a lot of people, um, who learn robotics will learn is how to make a robot follow a line on the ground. And you're so go on.
0: It, it, it's funny that you say that. So when I was in probably the, the, the fifth or the sixth grade I did Odyssey of the Mind and we actually built a little thing that had to follow a line on the floor and it was definitely not that sophisticated Uh, nowadays I mean you probably could do that in an hour or less you know as a kid
2: I mean they literally have um you guys heard of Lego Mindstorms so there's Lego Mindstorms kits that have sensors that allow you to do it in under five minutes at the age of 10 right and like, I think that's really changing the way people perceive what robots are. They become more comfortable knowing that it's not black magic. It's just this, it's this idea of technology that's been vetted over years and years.
1: I love it. And we're we're definitely going to get this for our nephew when he visits us this, this summer. <laughs> Sounds like a great time.
0: And I would say this session is definitely for the data uh, files, probably not so much for people that are scared of data and technology. I don't know. I, I think, think robots
1: can be very, very friendly and accessible. So I don't know.
0: There are
2: a lot of I mean, there are a lot of cute robots out there. There
1: are. And do you want to talk about cute robots just for a second? Yeah, sure.
2: So so
1: yeah, CES, we had a lot of cute robots that did cute things. So yeah, tell us tell us what you're seeing in that space around just fun. Fun stuff. Um,
2: so there's always there's sort of three that I always reference off of. There's probably hundreds out there. Um, one is uh, Sony makes the uh, Ibo robot dog that actually does they play like these soccer matches. They've been doing it for a long time, and it's in, it's an incredible amount of technology, but it's set up like a dog, It's sort of cute. You can you can program it and play around with it. There's um, a robot dinosaur called Pleo which has bounced in and out of the market, but it's an amazing animatronic feat in terms of how much technology goes into it. And it just, it's a small, I think it's bronchosaurus, someone with a long neck and it can walk around. And then the last one, which is probably the simplest in terms of technology, but it has had the biggest impact is actually a robot called Perro, which is a therapy, therapy robot. It's actually a, a little fuzzy seal that they bring to nursing homes and the elderly, and it's something to interact with that has drastically impacted the way that they live their lives. And it's been around for a while, but it's an amazing simple robot, but it has huge impact.
1: That's really cool. Those are fantastic examples. And I would say, I mean, the, the last example you gave, I mean, that's incredibly useful. I mean, a therapy robot, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, I think there's a, there's a low bar there, right? There is definite need with things like companionship, with things like that therapy piece, Um, you know, you see therapy dogs and therapy pigs and everything else on, uh, on your, you know, coming to a flight near you. Um, So there's obviously a need uh, in this country and in the world. So I think just from the companionship, as well as um, some of those, those care items, right, with elderly and um, even with young kids, right? That's really pretty big market all to itself.
1: I mean, my niece just wanted robotic pets for Christmas. She didn't want anything with fur on it. No stuffed animals, just a robo- you know, robotic pet. So, yes, I mean, this is clearly a big area. And um, at CES this year, there were also a lot of uh, robots that, I mean, I was kind of calling them companion tech, that they would say, no, they don't do anything useful. They're just here to give you company. You know, this AI is great because it will, you know, be a, a great conversationalist or um, this particular robot from Japan, Lovot, they they say, no, this doesn't do any work. It, it It's going to actually keep you from doing things that are quote unquote useful. It's, um, it's just meant to keep you company and to be adorable. So, you know, this is something that I, I think is culturally just really interesting, but, you know, wonder if it's going to stick around and actually they're actually going to move these things.
2: Yeah, I think robotics, there's this idea of, um, it's called HRI, it's human robot interaction. It's been around for a very long time and the advances made, I'd say in the last two to three years has been leaps and bounds. So people actually can relate to these types of, as you said, toys, like they become something that you're like, oh, I'm interacting with this as opposed to it exists, which is really cool.
1: And I wonder if, you know, what you're speaking about that, you know, the barrier to create has been lowered over time. Will the cost also, you know, come to a point where people can can buy these more? I mean, that that example I just gave this Lovot, just cute little Furby type of robot, it's $3,000. I mean, this obviously isn't something that's going to fly off the shelves at that price point. So, I mean, what do you, what do you see as the, as kind of the tipping point where these just purely fun robots will be able to actually be viable products and
2: companies? It's a very interesting question. I think that on the, cons- on the commercial space, they figured it out. And the answer ends up being you don't sell the hardware because depending on what you're trying to do, like robotics are expensive. I mean, let's look at just, just a straight definition of a robot, right? It something that takes in, data, sensor data, thinks about what to do, makes an intelligent decision, and then controls a system, either with a feedback loop or without a feedback loop to accomplish something. Now, if you look around the room you're in, there's a lot of stuff in that room that you would never think is a robot that's technically by definition a robot. So look at the first washing machines. They've come down in price, but they haven't come down that much. And, but they were always sort of in that accessible range because they did one or two things. So either we'll find more robots that are going to be doing less, or we're going to find new business models to get those robots out there. I mean, how many people have bought, um, these smart speakers for a very reasonable price. And I mean, I've worked in hardware. I know that a lot of these smart speakers are probably not making the margins that you would expect for a speaker. Um, just because of what needs to go into them. But the companies behind them know that they lead to interactions that lead to additional revenue in other ways. So as that business model shifts for consumer, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes up.
0: Well, and that's a really interesting point because I have always been a software guy, not a hardware guy. And you know, one of the things that I think there is hardware, in many cases, is a race to the bottom. Right, And if you look at hardware, once you solve, you know, some of the big components, right, are um, basically speed of, you know, actuator to kind of match, you know, match uh, twitch muscles in a human uh, because we always seem to be fascinated of making things work and look like a human. Um, That's obviously a tough challenge. Articulation of joints. You know, that was a challenge for a while, but it seems like we're quickly overcoming that sensors and basically storing all that data. That was a challenge, but I feel like we're quickly getting over that. And as we get over those right, then it starts to become a race to the bottom because the price erosion on each one of those components drops off tremendously versus software where you're building the OS, you're building the ecosystem you're actually building value and continuously changing and evolving that much quicker than you could ever evolve hardware.
2: Oh, no, I'm, I'm very much with you. That's why, I, as I said before, the, the idea of robots as the entire aspect of what you're building, I hope is a thing that's moving into the past. Robotics is a tool. It's like what you would refer to as adding a level of, machine learning into a database. It's a function that you can add and use, but you got to find the right way to use it.
1: And that's kind of along the line of what, what we've talked about uh around AI and machine learning that, you know, it, it's almost silly when you hear like a company describe themselves as like an AI company. Maybe it's also becoming silly for a company to describe themselves as a robotics company. Well, no, it's just uh it's a tool to the end. So what is the end, right? What is the value or the use? Um you know, I think that that seems to be the the trend that we're seeing.
0: i like to be an AI, machine learning, blockchain, uh, robotics company
1: that you can only buy via cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly,
2: only while driving your autonomous car.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and and it's artisanal all the way. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, so, you know, where do where do we go with this, right? And so it's interesting because. I read some articles the other day and I've seen this in the VC space. There are a lot of robotics companies that are dying actually, which is really interesting to me because everything that we've talked about for this first bit is, you know, Hey, this should be going up and to the right, right? I mean, it's a $31 billion global market right now and they're estimating, you know, growth in the 30 plus, you know, CAGR range, right? That's, that's significant growth on a global stage. So. Yeah, and
1: we don't want CES to be the highlight for a robotics company, which, of course, is when we get excited about some of these things that we see. So, John, what are, what are some of the things you're seeing in terms of, of the companies that may, maybe seemed promising but have uh, petered out?
2: Um, it's, it's actually really interesting. 2018 is a unique year for robotics. Uh, if you look at how robotics has grown, there's been a few companies that have really... Bubbled up in the public eye, um, so anyone on the street would, would have heard of them or seen a picture in a magazine or something like that. And I would say two, maybe three of the biggest ones, died in 2018. Um, and one of them, which was sort of in the industrial realm, was called Rethink Robotics. Um, they were one of the the I would say most funded startup in the uh, collaborative. Uh, automation space. So it was like humans working with robot arms in like a smart, safe way. Um, But they never really hit the scale that they were thinking about because there were so many, as we talked about before, so many other entrants coming in with uh, cheaper options or less functionality or anything like that. Um, And then the other one, which was really interesting, um, which I was very sad to see die, was a company called Jibo. And so Jibo um, was originally launched in as an idea from a PhD professor in 2012. And the idea was like this little robot in your house that could interact with you, answer questions, but it had a little bit of motion and like it had like almost eyes. It was uh, very akin to the, uh, the Pixar lamp that you see at the beginning of all the movies. And they were trying to build out this robot that would go in your house and be an assistant. And two years later, uh, Amazon Alexa launched, and I actually was lucky enough to talk with the CEO of Jibo, probably a year or two after Alexa came out, and I was asking them what, what are you going to do? Like this is a huge attack almost on what you were trying to say you were going to do, and they said, "Oh, we're not worried about it. It's a totally different space." And I read, I heard that, and I was very scared for them. Whenever um,
0: I hear, I'm not worried about it. Yeah, That's a completely, we don't have competitors is when I usually run fearful.
2: Yep. And so needless to say, three years later, they've, or two years later, they had to sell all their assets to an investment firm or PE firm. So then they just became a branding exercise and they've launched some robots, but I think they announced earlier this year that they just entirely uh, closed down shop.
0: Wow. Yeah, and I mean and if you think about rethink, that that's the exact one that popped to my mind. They took about 70 million, I think, in VC funding. So it's not like they were undercapitalized. Oh, I mean, I guess they, in the hardware they
2: were 150 around, million.
0: 150. Okay. Yeah. So they had a lot of money. Well,
2: they were at everything. They were like the front of every robotics magazine. Wow.
0: Well, and they, I, I'm pretty sure they debuted at 2017 CES. So they died pretty fast with a lot of money behind them.
2: They've been they've been around a little longer than that. They've rebranded a few times. Um, oh, okay, but but they're I agree. One of the big ones when they were at CES was was 2017.
0: Yeah, and so I can't help but think you know a big piece of this is VC disconnect, right? And we talk to a lot of VCs. I think you do as well. And one of the things that, you know, I've seen is I think this is a market that people don't fully understand because there are, you know, pardon the pun, there's a lot of moving parts and pieces, you know, what's, what's your take on that?
2: So I actually had an interesting conversation with um, a VC fund down in LA about something like this. And the idea is robotics is so exciting. For everyone. Everyone's excited about robotics. The possibilities are endless. And the way that I, that I view it is anyone can be a robotics visionary. They can say, hey, what if we automated um, brushing your teeth? Or what if we automated changing the tires on your car? Or what if we made this little thing that would go around your home and, and clean up your laundry? Um, but to actually taking that idea and building something with it is a lot harder. It's a, it's, A combination of of software, hardware, like the backend control, like movement, it's just very complex. And I think that the VCs are really used to uh, companies that are doing these ideas in software. And I mean, you guys have worked in software, I've worked in software. When things like break in software, you can just throw more people at it, work really hard and find a solution that will not necessarily solve it perfectly, but find something that works. And that doesn't always happen with robotics. I think that that's that's the big difference, and that mental model is going to have to shift for for VCs and, and for people who are trying to invest in these companies.
0: Well, I think that's a great point. I mean, redneck tech, as I like to call it, only scales so far. And when people are looking at your product, you know, having a two by four for the, for the arm that's uh, you know pulled with a couple aircraft cables. Um, somebody's probably not going to have a whole lot of faith in your product at that point. But if you did the software version of that behind the scenes, where nobody could see it, it doesn't really matter.
1: And then, and then we have companies that have really taken off and developed products that are really sticking and, and keep innovating. In mean, one, iRobot, near and dear to our hearts, because you know it's a Boston area company. But um, but John, what do you think is going on with iRobot in particular with how they've been seeing success?
2: Um, so I'm a big fan of iRobot. Um, I've had a chance to talk with Colin Engel a few times through the years. They've really taken it home to robots are the future. We're going to find pain points, find good solutions, market the hell out of it. And and see how we can grow, and then as we grow, add more technology. And so, I mean, the first thing they came out with was the Roomba vacuum cleaner, which was, in all intensive purposes, it was dumb. It was uh, two wheels. <laughs> dumb with and a vacuum so useful. <laughs> like, but when you compare it to where they are now, and you compare it to where some of the other ones are now, what they got to, it was a feat at the time. But now, looking back, you go, okay. That uh, I remember, I was a uh, Getting, I was a little bit outside of college, and some of my friends worked at a robot and they would bring home uh, Roombas that they had built from like the scraps. They were allowed to go in the scrap bins and like pick out pieces, and then just sort of put their stuff together, and they could ha- they could have Roombas in their their apartments or whatever. And I bet you if they tried to do that now, it'd be a totally different ballgame because of the amount of sensors they're putting into it. Um, but Outside of the tech, I was always impressed that a robot knew they needed to market. Like, if you look at their first robot, it was designed for the consumer space. It was launched for the consumer space, and it was supported with the right amount of services and support that they needed to actually be successful in the consumer space. And then they just kept growing from there. You had robotic vacuum cleaners. Then they launched, um, I think, a robotic pool cleaner was next. They experimented with cleaning gutters. I'm not sure if that one's still around. Then they had um, robotic uh, bathroom cleaner. I think it's called the scoops. Oh, Brava. I thought it was called the scuba at some point. I don't know. Um, and then they just came out with a robotic lawnmower, Terra. Um, and it's, it's very interesting because not only are they identifying pain points that I would say other people have identified as well. I mean, each of these aren't the only entry in the field. Yeah, they were first to vacuums, but they definitely weren't first in all these other ones, but they've executed in such a good way and they know how to go to market.
0: Um, You know what, John? I would say the most interesting part about them, in my opinion, and I think this is the problem with VC sometimes, right, is they fall into this trap and... We've had some of our clients actually tell us that, oh, well, a VC told us that we didn't mention machine learning or artificial intelligence in our pitch deck and that we really should put it in there. You know, just put it in there, put in AI, and that makes it all better. And if you look at iRobot, I can't think of any of their marketing that had anything to do with really you know, outside of their name, right. Talking about AI or machine learning or any of that stuff. They just said, here's a vacuum cleaner. It's automated. It's going to go around and it will magically find how to clean their pool thing, which is awesome. You know, and it's five or 600 bucks. It's actually not that much more than a creepy crawly thing or whatever their competitor is. Right. It goes around your whole pool. It figures it out and it just magically does it for like Five or six hundred bucks thats seems like a steal to me,
1: well, especially if you're hiring somebody to clean your pool. it's definitely a steal,
0: yeah, and I, I agree they they
2: focus on what is the user problem they're solving, and they use robotics as a tool, right it's not a it's not they're a robot company, but they're a robot company that's using robotics to solve these everyday problems, like Roomba, let's see who are, this is the their marketing for it is stays ahead of dirt, dust, and debris to help you keep your floors clean.
0: Perfect. We get it. It doesn't even sound like it has robotics in it, honestly.
2: And it's been been huge. And outside of that, it's just understanding your customer, right? So um, Terra is their newest one, the robotic lawnmower. I actually uh, looked at doing robotic lawnmower five years ago because there's a few other companies that are doing it, and the company I was at was trying to diversify. And... It's interesting. So they go, we, we're we launching this robot. It's going to be launched in Germany in 2019 and then potentially in the U.S. in 2020. And in your head, you go, why don't you launch in the U.S.? It's the biggest market for technology. It's all of these things, right? Um, when it comes to lawnmowers, revive lawnmowers, the number one market is Europe in the world. Like Because they have
1: smaller yards?
2: Smaller yards, um, more controlled. Like if you think about it, a lot of the stuff that was... It has since been built up over there. It's very, very like optimized for maintenance, for um, distributed systems of like the infrastructure. So, and they're just a little more accepting of this new technology than some of the people in the US are.
1: So interesting. Yeah. It's almost like going against that nostalgic, uh, you know, kind of quiet time of mowing the lawn and drinking your Budweiser. (laughs) Maybe we're not ready for it.
2: (laughs) Who knows? Who knows, Right. And, and um, one other thing, though, because we talk a lot about how, or I mean, Brian brought it up. iRobot does a good job of making the robots the the task completed with robotics without you even knowing. It's just like magic. It just it just happens. Um, every now and then, they have a tech a more technological PR wire new like release, like news release, and you'll see a bump in their in their stock price. Because they, people do know that you need technology to do this. And I think iRobot has done a good job of talking about it only enough.
1: And there's also that point of, you know, when, when you have clear communications of, okay, we're speaking to our, our consumer, which to your point, I think it's extremely well put. It has to work seamlessly like magic and, and solve the consumer problem. That's all they need to know. The, the technology, the behind the scenes, that could just be alienating and scary for a consumer. However, people who are potentially partnering with them, investing, well, of course, that's when you need to talk about all the you know advanced technology and, and their vision for the future and all that.
0: Well, one of my bosses once said to me, and he was really great, uh, he said to me, only show as much that you need to show in terms of using technology terms so that someone or that the person that you're addressing knows that you're for real. But then dial it back after that and just hold it in reserve. Uh, You don't have to show that you're a computer scientist, that you have an electrical engineering degree or whatever. Just you know, really keep that dialed back and hold that in reserve. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at with some of this tech is that Less is more when it comes to explaining the, the value prop um, to customers, which is really neat. But let's switch gears for a second because I want to actually talk about some robot fails, right? And I there's there's a bunch of them out there. And this isn't to dwell and say robots are bad. because
1: This, this may need to be a standing segment, robot fails.
0: Robot fails. Just They're always fun. Yeah. I do agree. Yeah. <laughs> so here's an interesting stat. So basically, they've been keeping track, the FDA, since 2000. So there have actually been robots and robot-assisted surgeries since 2000. Oh,
1: this this took a grim turn. This isn't so fun for a robot fail, but yes, continue.
0: No, no, it's all good. Um, but basically, in that time period, uh, until about last year, uh, there were 144 deaths that were caused by assisted surgery uh, about 100 and or about 1,300 injuries and 8,000 counts of uh, device failures, but they still actually consider it kind of a success because some of these surgeries were actually so hard to do with a human. Um, I think that that's that's interesting. I never had an idea that something that critical was out there being, you know, robot robotized, I guess, or roboticized, whatever. You guys can laugh at me later. We're
1: laughing now. It's cool. It's fine.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's actually a really interesting point.
2: It brings up two things. Uh, one is access. So if you look at, I mean, the Da Vinci robot or a handful of applications that are doing this, you can actually bring a phone or a robot to an area where a doctor can't go or it makes, they don't go there as frequently. And you can give them access to a doctor in their home office. So people can who couldn't get that life-saving surgery can now get it because of a robot being able to go there, which is super interesting. And then the other side is people assume robots are perfect and humans aren't perfect. I mean, when we look at fails, like, let's, yeah, it's grim, but let's look at some of the autonomous car fails that have happened. And yes, there's been some some bloodshed. But... If you look at that and then you compare it to how many accidents that people just get in, it's not even comparable. And it's very interesting to see how that, that conversation is going to develop.
0: I mean, I think 30,000 people in the U.S. or greater die in a car crash every year. And there's been, as far as I know, I mean, maybe there's more, but I know at least three people that have died from autonomous driving vehicle. That's really peanuts. Yeah,
2: and part of that is scale, but I, I totally am interested in how insurance companies are going to tackle that because we think, oh, it'll be regulations, it'll be government trying to figure out how to place blame. But the first the first group that's going to have to answer that is going to be the insurance companies. How do I insure an autonomous car or a semi-autonomous car? How do I take that risk factor and understand it?
1: Yeah, and who do you go after when it goes wrong?
2: Exactly. and And does that even start to prevent technology advancement because people are scared of being the one to blame.
0: Well, and this is something that I've talked about, I think on a previous podcast, which is basically uh, algorithm ambiguity, right? Which is when you get to a certain point of decision where something is going to come out of parameter or you have, you, you you basically have the accident in your sights, and you know that the accident's going to happen. Do you swerve and kill somebody do you kill the, the passenger do you know there's some really grim thought with that but maybe what happens is it becomes a basically a jump ball like a decision isn't made and the computer or the algorithm basically closes its eyes and sees what happens
2: yeah it's a, it's definitely an interesting challenge and it's exciting regardless of how grim it is because it's this challenge that we will see solved in our lifetime
0: yeah, no, I, I agree. And I agree that it is insurance companies that will ultimately drive it. And we actually talked to our attorney about this. Right. And we said, hey, you know, what, what are your thoughts about this? And he said that he actually thinks that the insurance companies in some ways have already solved it because of how they um, subrogate um, crashes or claims where they have two people that are both their customer uh, that get in an accident and they already have things in place for that today so to extend that you know in a situation like this they can start to mitigate and you know understand that risk and get really dialed in because it really becomes all about cost at some point
2: it's always about the money
0: yep that's why ford and firestone decided hey let's keep these things on the road because the uh, the cost benefit analysis said hey that that's probably the best way to go.
1: So for a, for a more lighthearted robot fail, um, I'll just throw out a little example. There was a, um, like a retail park, uh, outside of, of, um, Washington DC and they had a brand new fancy, uh, like security assistant robot. And he was only a few days into his, uh, patrol, when he was found face face down in a fountain. Oh no. Yes. No one knows what happened. I
0: love that you always find these like <laughs> real lighthearted <laughs> If he did it ones.
1: himself or if, if, if it was actually foul play, but um, yeah. So that was a, uh,
2: that's always fun. If you, if you guys want to want a good laugh, uh, look up some of the, um, the humanoid robots. There's a few companies that make, make them um, not the boss dynamic ones, the ones that have been around like forever. And there's a few of fails of them like falling downstairs, and they like fall over. And then like, they just keep trying to walk because they aren't doing it with sensors. It's more just like a routine.
1: I mean, this is like America's funniest home videos, except no one's actually getting hurt. So it's, it's good. Exactly.
0: I equate that to like when you're playing the strategy game and you get the robot to kind of like follow you into the corner sort of thing. And then it just sort of like the AI goes wonky and, kind of keeps bumping into the corner and it can't turn around and get back out again. You know, and, and I would say, if you think about robotic successes too, I mean, we have to give it up for NASA. NASA built, what, three or four uh, different robots that basically roamed Mars for way longer than their design life. I mean, we're talking years past their design life. They just powered one down uh, two weeks ago. I think that's really pretty impressive considering that the thing that took them out was a dust storm that lasted for like three months.
2: It it really is amazing. And actually, it's really funny. So you were talking about Curiosity Rover. Um, yes. And what it's funny. So it, it died, right? They said it died like a week or so ago. Um, they just fixed it. Are you
0: kidding amazing. me? I didn't see that.
2: Yeah, it just literally happened yesterday.
0: Wow. We've it's got so a- much snow here, apparently the internet slowed down. So.
2: <laughs> but, but but that's amazing, right? Not only is it something that's operated beyond its realm of operating time, but it's something that they still have enough control over to do diagnose gnostics and find solutions millions of miles away.
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of learnings that they got from that experiment and i'm not talking hey we collected some dust and some temperature samples but just that being able to control and command and change is amazing and so guys i think it's time we're at about 45 minutes and let's like let's wrap it up john thank you very much for joining us hopefully you had fun
2: oh absolutely thank you so much for having me it's been a
0: blast nice well, let's, uh, let's close it down. Well, thank you very much. And we will talk soon.
1: Have a great rest of your Sunday. Stay warm. Thanks so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share. And if you have a question or an idea that would be great for us to include on the next episode, we would love to hear from you. Just send us an email at hello at com. You can also send us a note on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. And finally, want to give a big thanks to our sponsors, Infonomic Data and Uprise Partners. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you next time.